You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. So we're the show where we take uh, the whole landscape of leadership, try to break it down into nice, understandable, bite-sized chunks. And today I've got a guest who is a fellow coach, and um, we we share some common bonds out in the marketplace. His name is Ryan Lottie. Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Doug. I appreciate it. Yeah, and Ryan has a specialty in the STEM area. It's a topic that uh, we've talked about a few times on this show, but we will uh, continue the journey and and talk about leadership in that world and coaching support that professionals who have that claim, have that title, can uh, get some help and ideas about enhancing their own position and such. But Ryan, I frequently like to start by asking guests, just tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got into what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, In a nutshell, I help uh, executives, board members, and leaders succeed despite uncertainty and risk, especially, as you mentioned, with uh, STEM organizations. As far as how I uh, went down that path or got on that path to begin with, As long as I can remember, I've always been intrigued by how organizations compete in the marketplace using different strategies, how they're structured, how they create the work environments or cultures that they have. And I'm dating myself a little bit here, but I remember back as an undergrad at UCLA, uh, and this is before uh, the internet was so prevalent, so many, many moons ago, where you actually had to go to a library to kind of do research for classes. Uh, I often found myself there that, uh, you know, I'd read an article on something related to the class, but then I'd notice uh, another article is mentioned on leadership or uh, strategy or structure that would take me down a rabbit hole. And two hours later, I'd read a bunch of articles that were really interesting to me, but had nothing to do with the class assignment. So (laughs) it kind of made me realize, okay, that's probably not the best for the class coursework, but it did highlight this is a path, a career path that I would like to go down. And so uh, as I got more and more further into my career, I realized, you know, I'm really curious about what helps organizations to operate more effectively. And uh, as I dug into that, I really became more interested in how to help leaders uh, who run those organizations be more effective at what they do, because you and I both know that leadership effectiveness and organ effectiveness go hand in hand. So that's kind of what started me down the path as far as uh, broader career strap, uh, steps. I wanted to get exposure to a variety of different organizations as much as I could in shorter periods of time. So was it a matter of taking a corporate role in leadership and org development? Yes, I did do that. Uh, but I also went down the path of large global consulting firms. Uh, so that also exposed me. And that was kind of intentional by design because I wanted to experience both sides of the of the table. So the service provider as well as the client. Uh, and then as far as adding some depth and rigor to my background, uh, grad school is involved there as well. So I could kind of add to the depth in that field. Sure. So where was the pivot and focus into the STEM world? When did that happen? That uh, happened uh, several decades ago. And again, I'm dating myself a little bit. 
But what I realized as I worked with more and more organizations across a variety of industries, that there were certain types that I just found more interesting. And they were typically technical and data-driven, or more specifically driven by science, technology, engineering, and math. So as I started to work with more and more of those organizations, I would get in, find myself in, in conversations uh, related to STEM. And often when I would talk with people about STEM, I would usually hear two things. The first thing I would hear uh, more often than that was about curriculum or curricula at the middle school, high school, and college level. Like, okay, so those are important for building STEM skills. Um, but the other thing I would often hear, probably a little less often, was about STEM-driven or STEM-related economies, which uh, we all know that um, STEM-related economies in, in metropolitan areas do better on jobs and innovation. So as I keep, kept hearing these conversations, when I go to conferences or talk with people in different organizations, it just made me realize something that, or really there was something that was missing. And that is what I consider the linchpin in that continuum from curricula to economies, and that, and that is STEM organizations. So uh, the way I define that is uh, organizations that are technical and data-driven, uh, obviously driven by science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, they are important because they are the linchpin in that continuum that I just described from curriculum to economies. So often when I would share that with people, they would really question, well, are, are they really that prevalent? Are STEM organizations really that prevalent? And if, if you think about it, take your typical week or your you know, typical two weeks, and you consider uh, what you do, where you go, how you get there, and how you remain able to do all those things, you'll probably find that STEM organizations are involved in all of them. So let me, let me give you some examples here. So you and I are having this conversation using computers, laptops, tablets, software, semiconductors. Those all come from technology companies. Um, you know, how we get to the office buildings, the stores, the houses that we go to, you're probably going to take a car. Or maybe uh, you're flying to other parts of the country to visit a client, and you're probably going to take uh, fly an airplane. Like those come from automotive, aerospace companies. Uh, as far as... Um, you know, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> pardon me, where you're going to, the, the different buildings, et cetera, those are built by engineering and construction companies. And then how do you remain able to do all those things? Well, if you wanted to remain healthy, then you bring in hospitals and healthcare organizations, you bring in biotech, med device, pharma companies, as far as, well, how do you replace things that get damaged or that uh, disappear? Well, then you bring in uh, insurance companies, uh, how do you pay your bills? Well, then you bring in banks and financial services. All those are STEM. So uh, STEM organizations impact us much more than we know. Right. <clears throat> and it, when I think about the STEM world, I immediately go to my own core passion about leadership development and organizational development. And we, I, I'm going to sling a very broad, ugly brush and talk about the personalities that are typically associated with STEM leaders. Mm -hmm. And that is the heavy analytic mindset, the often introverted personality, the, and 
Boy, there's a joke that just came to mind, and I'm I'm not going to repeat it. I mean, it's it's the engineering <laughs> joke, and I'm, I'm going to let that go. We'll save that for a blog post somewhere. But um, the point being, often when we think about leading businesses, sometimes we think about the persona that is uh, fairly charismatic, fairly dynamic. You know, a, a big personality. And you don't see that with STEM people, you know, they're, they tend to be more quiet, reserved, thoughtful, introspective, again, analytical and somewhat introverted. So when we, when we really focus our attention to how do people build these organizations that no doubt are core based on STEM matters, how do leaders in those organizations create the culture and create the dynamic that generates success? Well, I'll share, I'll share some of uh, my experience from the research that I, I did with STEM organizations. So as I worked with more and more of them across 20 industries, I kept noticing this pattern uh, that kept popping up. And, and the pattern was this, there were certain leaders uh, that were uh, very good at handling uncertainty and risk. And then there are certain leaders who were not. And these could be technical leaders, these could be overall uh, C-suite leaders, these could be board, board members as well. Um, as I dug into more and more of that, <clears throat> I'm like, okay, is this, number one, is this a legitimate pattern or is it just purely coincidence? Uh, number two, if it's a legitimate pattern, what's behind it? So I'm a data guy. So I wanted to kind of dig in and say, okay, Let's see if this is what I think it is. As I kind of analyze the work I've done across those 20 industries, uh, the pattern was there, but to further validate it in my own mind, I analyzed 10 years worth of leadership assessments that I had done as well, and the pattern was there too. So I'm like, okay, it's a legitimate pattern, but, but what's behind it? And as I analyzed more of the data, it revealed what I would consider seven essentials that kind of separated those leaders who are really good at handling uncertainty and risk from those who are not. And so um, really what I call kind of seven essentials, and I would break those into two categories. Uh, one category deals with what these leaders uh, think about on their own prior to and during those situations involving uncertainty and risk, those tricky situations. They're more intrapersonal in nature. Uh, they're also foundational because they, they enable the other four. Uh, the remaining four are really more uh, dealing with how those leaders relate to others as they handle the uncertainty and risk. So they are more interpersonal. So um, if I were to kind of encapsulate or summarize what that represents, uh, it's really the way these leaders carry themselves as well as understand, process, and skillfully or deftly perform in tricky situations that involve uncertainty and risk. And that's really where I play is in the uncertainty and risk space. So as I've talked about that with people, they often will say, okay, so what do you mean by these seven essentials? Um, I'll, I'll give you some examples. So to start with kind of the foundational, foundational three, leaders I've found that are really good in STEM organizations at handling uncertainty and risk, the first thing they will typically do is they will take the time to gauge kind of what's the type and severity of the situation, who's in it, who's impacted by it, who can influence it, and how do they do so. Uh, this, the, that's really more about kind of reading the situation and the stakeholders. Uh, the second thing they typically will do 
is they'll consider, okay, what am I bringing into that situation in terms of strengths that can help me with the uncertainty and risk versus uh, the limitations that can possibly get in my way. Um, then they use the, and that's really about kind of le leveraging self-awareness. Uh, they then use those two in, in combination to try to identify well, what are approaches or strategies I can use that are more likely to produce the outcome I'm looking for, typically a positive outcome. And that's really about anticipating the impact. So what I found is those, the leaders that are really good at handling uncertainty and risk use those three just you know, prior to and during the situation they're in. And that enables them to do the remaining four, uh, which are more interpersonal. I'll give you an example of those as well. Uh, so once they're in that situation, how do they show up? You know, do they use more of a uh, softer, more of a velvet glove approach, or do they use more of a stronger steel hand approach, or something in between those two? And they determine that based upon the situation they're in and who's in with them. So, and that's really about uh, conveying a measured presence. So they determine how measured to be based upon the situation they're in and who's in it with them. Uh, often, uh, what they will find is that there will be conflict. And especially when you're dealing with uncertainty and risk, the conflict will often be more frequent and more intense. So the leaders who are really good at handling uncertainty and risk, when it comes to conflict, uh, they they focus more on what the underlying issue is or figure out what the underlying issue is rather than focus on the characteristics of the opposition. You know, this person is so X, fill in your favorite, you know, negative adjective. You know, maybe they're obstinate or stubborn, blah, blah, blah. They focus more on the underlying issue. And that's really about uh, um, differing with the issue, not the party. The next kind of couple things that they would do is of course, when you're in these tricky situations, you're typically not alone. You're typically not doing it in a vacuum. You will often have people that you're relying on, partnering on to help you be successful or help these leaders to be successful. What enables that success to continue is these leaders will take the time to help those people understand what's making them successful or not by providing guide back, guidance and feedback to help them continue to be successful. So it's basically uh, what I call being a mirror to help people adjust. And then the uh, last thing that I've seen that I typically have found that these successful leaders do in uncertainty and risk is they realize, uh, very quickly realize that they don't already know that as much as they may be driven and as much as they may be achievement oriented or results oriented, they cannot do things on their own for very long, or at least not for very long, without risking burnout. So they will take the time to empower others through strategic delegation so that they can spend their time and energy more wisely. In other words, they get things done through others. So that's typically what I found with STEM organizations uh, that help these leaders, whatever form of leader they are. And again, I've defined leadership a little bit broad, more broadly than maybe most people do. Um, that's what helped them to be successful. Yeah. And so go ahead. Well, one thing that uh, comes to my mind in, in my own experience working with STEM organizations, and as most of my audience knows, I, I live in the Houston area, so I have had opportunity to do some frontline work with a lot of the big oil companies. There's a there's kind of a legacy of leadership and management style that you would classically call command and control. It's a, a lot of these companies have hundred year legacies, hundred year plus, and 
they, you know, a lot of the people grew up in the organization working for people that were, you know, my way or the highway kind of programmatic uh, managers. And they, those coming up, adopted that style because that was successful for the old guys. So it's going to be successful for me. And that legacy perpetuates. But I will say this, without any exception, every company that I'm aware of has made a pivot in the last five years and said, we have to consciously change that environment. We have to change the culture here. A, because the younger generations are not going to suffer that. They're, they're, they're not going to consider us an employer of choice if we continue to operate that way. And B, there's just not a real good reason to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> very, very much so. Absolutely. You know, especially as uh, the generations kind of succeed, uh, the prior generations agree to 100%. Uh, what I found when it comes to uh, creating that that work environment in, in the STEM organizations that I've worked with is uh, one thing that really kind of contributes to that is a, a few elements. The first thing would be what type of balance is there and balance in, in two ways. Number one is the balance that the employees feel between work and personal concerns. For example, let's say that they have uh, an ill or a sick child or spouse or parent, how much flexibility do they have to take care of that ill child, sick uh, parent or spouse? Do, can they work more remotely and adjust accordingly? Is a company willing to do that? So that's balanced in the first sense. The second sense is the balance between purpose and profit. So what is the organization's perspective on that? And, and what is the individual employee's perspective on that? And how well do those align? more alignment, obviously, the greater the balance and contributes to a the better environment. The second thing is, and you kind of hit this already, is, well, where does leadership stand in all this? You know, how well do they coach? How well do they mentor? How do well do they recognize people's performance? You know, how well do they actually uh, demonstrate the values that they espouse? Do they just talk about them? They're actually, can do you actually see them doing them? And the, the other thing, a few other things that I see that will contribute to that is, well, what are the opportunities that the employees have to apply the capabilities that they, they've developed over their career or in, in their jobs at that organization? Do they have the opportunity to maybe take on uh, an informal role as a part of their current job? Do they have a, a opportunity to do a temporary assignment? Or maybe they have an opportunity to take a new job that will continue to build those capabilities. And, and as far as like the necessities that the organization provides, well, what type of tools, support, resources, obviously comp and benefits is included in that. But what, is, what does the organization provide so that they can do their work and sustain themselves? And then the last element is, well, what, what does growth look like? Growth in the sense of what are the formal learning and development uh, resources and opportunities or, or things that they can do to build their capabilities? And that kind of works with uh, what I was talking about a second ago about the job rotational or uh, temporary assignments, they kind of work hand in hand. One is building capabilities. One is more about applying the capabilities and continuing to refine them. So those elements I've found within the STEM organizations that I've worked with uh, really help to kind of build that environment uh, that where people want to be and stay. And, and we know from, from uh, research that dating back to the 1960s that 
uh, when we're looking at what's the, one of the bigger contributors to that environment, we know that leadership is a big one. You know, 50 to 67 percent of the of what people experience in the work environment is due to leadership or the approaches that leaders use. Uh, or if you don't believe Harvard, then listen to Gallup. You know, 70 percent of of the variability engagement across business and units is due to leadership. So I think you, you hit a really good point there about leaders got to adjust and the smarter organizations are doing that, especially the smarter STEM organizations. So what's the payoff? Well, we we know from, from work that has been demonstrated, again, again, getting Harvard credit or not that I just want to highlight Harvard, but they happen to do the research, that uh, organizations with those type of a cultures where employees feel appreciated, where customers feel appreciated, they have shown over a, a, a 4x increase in revenue and a 12x increase in stock price over an 11 year period. So we know that, okay, there's your payoff. It's not just a better environment, it also makes business sense. There's even one tech company that I'm thinking of that actually took it down to the divisional team level. And they found that those organizations that had that more motivating work environment or pardon me, those teams that had the more motivating work environment brought in $711 million more in profit in a year compared to the teams that didn't have that type of motivating work environment. So I think you hit a really good point there in terms of how important it is to have that type of environment, <clears throat> the roles that leaders play in that. Well, and at the core of it is this whole idea, and I'll go back to my original broad brush, ugly statement I made that, um, uh, people with the acumen and the training in the STEM world tend to show up with those unique personalities that are kind of rigid, kind of analytical, generally introverted, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in the organizations I've worked with, when they've done their employee satisfaction surveys, a couple of very interesting things emerge. There's a statement at all levels, not just the rank and file, but mid-management and upper management. The statement is, I wish my boss was more relatable. <laughs> and and it, it, it's interesting to watch these organizations where that's getting reported at every level of the organization. So the senior guy is saying, I wish the CEO was more relatable. The, the, the L3 is saying, I wish my L2 was more relatable, and so on and so on. And... Again, those that are really committed to this change have said, all right, what does that mean to become more relatable? And I'll fast forward, I have done a lot of work with some very senior, near retired executives in those companies. And when they look back, they will say, my ability to build relationship was more valuable than any of the technical acumen I ever put on the table. And it was usually a later in career revelation that they needed to work on the relationships around them and above them to really advance and perpetuate success in their role. I agree with you 100%. And I think the, the smarter organizations are figuring that out faster. There's one that I'm thinking of on top of my head that is STEM-based, of course, uh, where 25%, and they say this from the CEO down, actually board level on down, that 25% of your job at this organization is to build relationships. So they not only encourage employees at all levels to do that and have them set aside time in their, in their daily, weekly schedule, but they also built their campus and their campuses at large campus to support that. 
a lot of open space, a lot of places for people can have one-on-ones or small group chats in order to build those type of relationships. And uh, of course, as you would expect, the culture of this organization is one of the best that I've seen. Yeah. And not, not surprisingly, people very rarely leave. They work hard. No, don't get me wrong. It's not just rainbows and unicorns. They work hard, but um, they want to be there. And as a result, uh, not surprisingly, this organization is a leader in its industry uh, for the products that it produces. It also has one of the highest amounts of innovation that I've seen in any company. So again, that supports kind of what you're saying here. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, I did an engagement last year with a large global tech company that happened to have a, a big play in the aerospace world. And um, um, I was dealing with some upper level leaders. And one of the objectives was to put together a leadership development plan that had two or three really key initiatives that these people were going to commit to do. And then it had to be reviewed with their bosses. And uh, I, I took one of my clients and went to his boss's office and we started doing it. And the boss basically said, I get everything you put on here from a personal level, but you're missing one big one. I want to see you have in your development plan an exercise to figure out how you're going to develop your people. So it was that part relationship, part people-centric, human-centric initiative. And as fate would have it, one of my other coaching clients reported to this same boss. And I, as a coach, I was faced with the conundrum of, do I tip the scales? Do I inform this guy before we get there? And I said, no, I'm going to let him learn it <laughs> organically. <laughs> so we scheduled the one-on-one -on -one or the three-way, I mean, and uh, and the boss looked at me and he grinned and he said, you know what I'm going to say, don't you, Doug? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And, and uh, so he told the guy, he said, personal development looks wonderful, but you've left off an area of developing your own people. And that's my mantra. And I, so it, it kind of goes back to what you said, Ryan, about the 25% commitment of effort to, you know, building relationships, developing people, developing teams. And I, I thought it was interesting to, um, uh, and when it was over, my, my second client said, you knew this, didn't you, before he went in there? And I said, yeah, I did. But I thought it'd be more impactful if you heard it from the boss's mouth. So he agreed. He said, that's, that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, uh, more and more. I agree with your point that uh, from the top down or, or emphasizing that hence the 25% of that organization I mentioned. Um, there are a couple I've, uh, you made me think of a, of a, a CEO that I've been working with that had a, I was a new CEO that had a, a similar challenge where he was taking over uh, someone who was kind of one of the, had been with the organization, arguably, arguably he was a founder, uh, taking it for him. So since uncertainty and risk is kind of where I play, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty and risk for this gentleman stepping into a role, replacing someone who had kind of started the organization. This was, you know, a, a large company. So a fair amount of risk for him, fair amount of uh, risk for the organization as well. And he had uh, challenges that he had faced. He kind of had two key ones. One was, one big one was trust. So, and trust with the, with the executive team, uh, largely because of what his predecessor had created. 
his predecessor had created this environment on the executive team that was very competitive. Uh, so basically what this the predecessor had done was that uh, when it came to making decisions and from a strategy standpoint and operating the organization, uh, he would make his decision and then he would go ask for input from his executive team. The executive team knew this, of course. And so all they would do is try to figure out which way he was leaning and then try to align themselves with him as best they could. So as a part of doing that, they would often undermine each other, which is, would just kind of make it that much more of a competitive environment. So that was one kind of element of trust that this new CEO had to deal with. Uh, the second thing was that he had a couple of players on the executive team, which often happens, which uh, really were not performing at the C-suite level. So the prior CEO knew that, the team knew that, the prior CEO just didn't do anything about it. So the executive team was running, okay, is this new guy just going to continue to do the same thing, let it fester, or is he actually going to address it? And then the third thing was this gentleman actually had been one of the one of their peers. Now he was their boss. So now they're trying to deal with him in that respect. So he had those dynamics to deal with. So uh, when he approached me and we were talking about it, well, how do you want to proceed? And I said, well, you've got a huge trust problem here. So you've got to start there. Otherwise, uh, the relationships aren't going to continue to develop the way they should develop. And you can't uh, grow this organization. You want it the way you want it to grow without your executive team helping you make that happen. And so that's kind of where we started. Uh, and then second element for him was really about uh, managing conflict. So he, bright guy, uh, very talented guy, but when it came to uh, disagreement, he would often dig in his heels and it became this contentious test of wills. Uh, so it was a matter of trying to get him to understand, okay, you know, conflict isn't a bad thing. It's just, it needs to be productive conflict. And basically, if you look at what it is, it's just a difference in perspective between two or more parties. And so you got to make your peace with that. Uh, how you handle it makes it good or bad. So if you can focus less on the person sitting across the table and, and what you think of them or their whatever adjective you want to apply to their names and more on the underlying issue that is really important to them or to the rest of the team, you're going to have a better outcome. And eventually we got there. But uh, to your point, it, it does take uh, some willingness to be to be a part of it and the recognition that this needs to be a part of that individual's plan as well. Another theme that I've heard a lot coming out of STEM organizations is that, and, and part of this goes to your whole uncertainty factor, as, as market dynamics are shifting rapidly and technologies are changing rapidly, et cetera, et cetera, companies are faced with assessing new situations and new opportunities. And again, going back a little bit to the command and control style of leadership, there's a tradition of sort of working the problem and getting 100% accuracy of and, and contributing to the answer before you make a decision. Mm -hmm. And the report out is that it's a classic Peralto rule, you know, you 80% of the answer takes a minute to figure out, but that last 20% of certainty takes a long time to research, analyze and, and assess. And if you if you wait for that 100% certainty, you miss the opportunity. Mm. So there's a mind shift of saying, 
well, is a 70-80% solution satisfactory? If the 70 or 80% certainty tells us go, then let's go. And let's let's get our minds around becoming comfortable with accepting the, the outcome. If if our 70 or 80% said all green light, let's go, and we go, and whatever reason turns out it's a fail, we need to get we need to become okay with accepting that because business is risky. Mm-hmm. And and so that's a conundrum in the in the STEM mindset that is a big challenge as I've seen it. What what have you seen in that regard for decision making? Well, I, I do see the same thing, and it's uh, it's great if you have enough lead time. It really is. But, uh, you know, whether you're talking from a strategy standpoint at the enterprise level, if you're just talking about walking into a board meeting, uh, it's great if you can prepare for that and if you know what to expect. But often you don't you don't have that information. So a lot of it you have to do more in, in real time. So to the point, and I'm taking down the individual level now, and I'll go back to the to the broader points you're making at the individual level, because I will get this question a lot from clients, you know, whether they're a board member or a C-suite executive or a, a division head. It's like you, you can, you know, plan if you know who's going to be there, you know what the, the call is going to be about, the meeting's going to be about. But if if you don't have that luxury, and many times you don't, you've got to pay attention to what's going on in the room, what's the information you have in front of you, and especially the data in the room, help you make that decision. And you make the call as best you can. You don't want to get stuck in analysis paralysis, which, you know, that 80, 90% can be good enough and the 10% doesn't gain you that much. Even if you can get it, to your point, it takes much more time and the ROI may not be there. So it often will end up being iterative. And even if you look at the organizations in the STEM space, and a lot of them are highly dependent upon innovation, the innovation they have, they aren't always 100% sure that it's going to be perfect when they they put out a new product and a new service. Right. It, it's iterative. Right. Right. I, I think about, you know, recent headline news, all the work that is going on in SpaceX and how many launches have blown up on the launch pad. And, you know, and, you know, those guys worked the problem and had what they believed was 100 percent certainty of success. And then they lit the candle and poof, you know, big, big flame out. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking just if, uh, if we're looking at uh, just on the concept of innovation, thinking about, you know, something that we all use every day, which is most all of us anyway, a smartphone. So what were the, the mobile phones they had 20 years ago? You know, the size, the power they have, what you could do with them compared to what we have now, just the amount of innovation that went into that and the iterative innovation that went into that from not only just the size and power of the chips inside of them, the durability of the case that housed those components, the screen, the touch screen that we now have, which 20 years ago, you have a what on your phone? And then, you know, all the things that we can do with the operating system and the apps that, that come in, whether it's ordering, you know, food or an Uber or groceries, that alone, just the innovation is mind-boggling, but that didn't happen perfectly the first time. And, right, right. I would, I'll share another example with you that was more, more recent. Um, just looking at another section of STEM where you look at, well, what about something like an artificial heart valve or a bioprosthetic heart valve? Uh, the amount of innovation that went into that, it didn't, wasn't perfect the first time. And, and I'm not talking about 
just the cobalt chromium uh, alloy structure that you know the bovine or porcine tissues attached to in terms of innovation. I'm talking about well, what amount of innovation went into the bovine tissue itself. Where do you source it? How do you store it? How do you ship it? How do you prevent it from calcifying, which is a common issue for any uh, heart tissue, whether it's human or animal? Uh, that, again, uh, we wish we could walk into that and have a 100% answer. Probably not. Right. First go round. Right. Well, and, and that's obviously where research and discovery comes into play. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the, you know, the famous mindset at Amazon for, you know, fail fast and mm -hmm. let's fail forward. And um, so it was that whole idea of got an idea, let's go try it and see what it does. And if it doesn't work, okay, let's learn from it and keep moving. And um uh, I think that's the mindset shift that often betrays your classic STEM leader. They're, they're wanting process, they're wanting levels of certainty, levels of measure, and levels of data input to be able to make those ultimate decisions and go and no-go. And in the, in the velocity of business today, you don't always have that. You, you don't have the luxury, and, and you make a really good point there, because I was actually just talking with a client uh, earlier this week uh, who actually is in, in their art, heads up their R&D division of, a, of an organization, and he has a challenge when he brings in people with a heavy technical background that often will come out of academic arena or a more even more technical space than that, and trying to get them to make that transition from, okay, this is not research just for research sake it's also you need to be able to do something with this and do something this with this within a fixed time frame so yes and it reinforces that point we were talking about a few minutes ago about 90 percent, and then we try it and then we iterate and then we go from there versus the traditional academic model is no it has to be near perfect before we'll do anything two different two different mindsets two di two different arenas uh, one is more applied and one is more for research for research research sake. Well, one last topic area I want to get into, Ryan, and then we're going to have to wrap this up. Sure. The, the evolution of business relative to the COVID lockdown and the whole work from home environment, what are you seeing with the companies you work with and their struggle to make the call about return to work? I'm seeing more and more of them starting to stabilize, to be quite honest with you. A year ago, if you asked me that question, I would see a lot more churn, a lot more frustration, and what do we do? I'm not seeing that anymore. I'm seeing much more organizations. This is what our hybrid policy is. And again, it's much more hybrid in terms of forcing them back to work 100%. It's more hybrid. And the hybrid most commonly I'm seeing is three days in, in office, two days off. Uh, and then some variability in terms of you pick the days, but they've got to be consistent, whatever you decide on. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have to agree, I, I, and, and I like the way you frame that. I think it has generally stabilized more so than it was probably a year ago. I, I think there's still a somewhat raging debate by some, and I was reading some articles this morning before I opened up my day and uh, they um the commentaries were the fact that uh, the jury is still out we're not done yet uh, you know uh, finding the the answer to this question 
But um, I think everybody is agreeing that work will never look the same again as it was pre-COVID, that the um, 40 hours in the office for those who do office work is not going to happen. So there'll be, there'll be some iteration, some variety, some change. But, um, you know, a lot of the leaders I talk with, it, it clearly has been a struggle for them to embrace leadership in the electronic world, you know, and they, I, I have opted to challenge most of my clients to quit using it as a convenient excuse. Yeah, agreed. And, and step up and think about how you can better lead your team, even though they all might be on a screen. And and you, there are still ways you can connect and and influence and have that relationship with your people, even though you don't see them five days a week in the office. Uh, I agree with that one hundred percent. The one other thing that I would add to that is, uh, again, I think it's a matter of perspective, and that's why I agree with you saying, you know, calling them out on, okay, you're using that as an excuse is actually can be a huge advantage. And many of the executives that that I've found are more effective have. I've looked at it just that way. And many of them have said, you know, uh, I'm able to connect with more people in other parts of the country or if it, you know, other parts of the world, if they have, you know, staff, a large amount of staff in, in India or some other place as well. I didn't get to interact with them that much. So by the fact that we're using Zoom or Teams or Google Meets or RingCentral, or whatever your preferred application, I can connect with them much more and I have a much better rapport with them. Now, if we want to uh, complain to say, well, we can't, we're not in the same physical space, well, then you do something about that. But the the Zoom piece or the virtual piece, I think, can be a huge advantage. So I'm kind of with you. It's a matter of how you look at it and how you decide to use it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you, Ryan, for sitting in and sharing with us. Uh, tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're looking for more information. Probably the best way to get hold of me would be, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn, look up Ryan Lottie, send me a meeting invite, or go to orgleader.com and find out more information there. All right. And as always, folks, we're going to have that information in the show notes. And I want to close by thanking you for your time. I know you're busy out there trying to make a difference where you are. And uh, I, I, do not take for granted your participation as a listener, and uh, I would welcome your feedback and input. J drop me a line on any of my social links. Let me know uh, what you're thinking. If there's a topic we haven't covered yet that you'd like to hear, let me know. And with that, I'm going to sign off, say goodbye, and have a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.